This week on 880 In-Depth, the stories we remember from 2019. I'm Tim Schell, joined by WCBS reporter Peter Haskell. We put the call out, Peter, to our talented team of reporters and asked them, what are the stories you remembered covering in 2019? We're going to put together two weeks' worth of in-depth podcasts talking to the people that covered these big stories. Among them, over the course of the next two weeks, remember the helicopter that crashed on top of the building in Manhattan? What a crazy scenario. And the fact that only one person died is really quite amazing. The story of Jeffrey Epstein uh, was a was a big story during the course of, of this year and probably will uh, pour into next year. We have a bunch of other stories and all of our creative team in here. But I have to say, probably the biggest story that we covered during the course of the year, the most impactful, was the one that you wrapped your arms around from the day that the year began. And that is the 9-11 Victims Compensation Fund. We began the year, 2019, not knowing if we would have enough money to pay the expenses, the costs of the heroes that saved our lives back in 2001. Amazing, right? And what happened was there was a pot of money from a previous VCF bill, and the, the pot was running dry. And the question is, would Congress put up enough money so if somebody, somebody couldn't work or they died, they or their family would get money? And this was just a brutal, bruising political battle. And why, the question we had asked going into the year was, why do we have to go... Uh, every year back to the well. Why Why do the New Yorkers have to go back to Washington, D.C. and beg for more money uh, to help uh, who were the heroes and the victims of 9-11, the victims that are still being victimized today? Well, first and foremost, it is a huge price tag. You're talking about billions of dollars. And you have members of Congress who say this is a New York issue. It's not a national issue. It happened there. Not my problem. I don't want to spend my money on it. Big moment came uh, earlier in the year when, and you took a couple of trips down to Washington, D.C. with some of the the folks, the 9-11 heroes that were lobbying, the John Fields and, and, and others who have been, you know, superheroes on this issue for many, many years. But uh, you took a couple of trips to cover the lobbying that went on in the halls of Congress. Tell me about that. Really fascinating. So you've got these mostly first responders going down to Washington and trying to tell members of Congress, hey, look, we need this money. Here's why. They gave a little bit of the emotional pull, but they came with numbers. Senator, in your state, there are X number of people who are sick. They're in the health program. Senator, 9-11, this year, you tweeted... Never forget the heroes. Never forget. Well, we're going to call you on it. If you say, don't forget, put your money where your mouth is. It was really very effective, very powerful, a lot of really intense human stories that were told as well. It's amazing. We, we know about lobbying in uh, the halls of Congress. This was a particularly uh, close one for us because it was lobbying for life-saving uh, help 
uh, and for support for the families left behind uh, in the 9-11 attacks, which is especially close uh, to us in uh, here in New York. Uh, one trip in particular was probably the most noteworthy and may have been what tipped the balance in the favor of the 9-11 responders and those who were sickened. And that came in what month? June. That was June. June. Um, I want to talk a little bit about that, but let's play first a cut of a gentleman by the name of Detective Luis Alvarez. You all said you would never forget. Well, I'm here to make sure that you don't. So you could tell from Lou's voice that he was a little bit frail. And if you saw him, he was gaunt, he was frail, his eyes were sunken, they were yellow. And he was, it's a cliche, but he was a shell of his former self. He looked like he was 75, he was 53. He was dying. And he went to Washington, not for himself. His payment had already been made. He was doing it for the people who came after him, who would be sick after him. And he gave this powerful, moving speech about why this needed to be done. And he said, this is not like hitting the jackpot. This is so people can live their lives. And less than three weeks later, he was dead. Sitting next to him at the uh, in the hearing room in uh, Washington D.C. up on the hill uh, was one John Stewart. And listen to this: They responded in five seconds. They did their jobs with courage, grace, tenacity, humility. Eighteen years later, do yours. That was an emotional moment in this battle, wasn't it? John Stewart is known as a comedian, but he has taken this issue on. He was living in Lower Manhattan then, and it's been very serious to him, and he's been involved. But he went there, and he was passionate, and his words were powerful, and there were times you could hear him pounding the table. He was angry. He was furious, and he, he sat there... And he saw how many empty seats there were in the committee room and the people behind him, all the seats were packed. Cops, firefighters in uniform pleading and trying to shame these members of Congress into supporting this bill. Now, truth be told, and, he did, and it was a, a wonderful moment in terms of power uh, for uh, this lobbying effort. Uh, there was some criticism about how it, how it played out because it was a big hearing room. So even the subcommittee that this was meeting before didn't have 41 members and there were 41 seats. So it looked emptier than it would be. But you were in that room. There were, you know, part of it was that there was almost dismissiveness among members, a couple of members of Congress, not all of them. And, and most of the opponents were Republicans, but some Republicans supported this. But there was this sense of, you know, how much more do you want us to give you? And the response was, you're not giving us. We earn this in our, in our blood and in our sicknesses and the trauma and the emotional trauma. PTSD is a huge issue in this 9-11 community. And John Stewart really was so powerful that they didn't... And look, people didn't never heard of Lou Alvarez or John Feel or a lot of these responders. John Stewart talks 
people pay attention. That got a lot of attention. And one of the stories behind that, I don't know that that got as much attention, but it was something that you reported on because you were there. Uh, in the hallway uh, leading into the uh, hearing room that day, something happened before the hearing began in the hallway that made John Stewart, that fueled that fire inside of him, that emotional fire that made him that warrior, even though he's been all along. But, but t- tell us about that. It made him throw out his speech is what it did. So one of the people who had been to D.C. over and over again was a, a retired firefighter by the name of Ray Pfeiffer, who, when he became ill, would go and lobby from a wheelchair. Ray Pfeiffer died, and these other advocates got his, his bunker coat, mm-hmm. and they were going to present it to John Stewart. They all signed it. And before they went into this hearing, in this house hallway, they presented John Stewart with this bunker coat. And it was really a very powerful and emotional moment. I don't deserve this, um, but I will treasure it like I treasured Ray and our friendship. And all we're going to do it today, not just for Ray, for all you guys and all the people that he was fighting for. This is beautiful. Thank you. Truth be told, that was really the big moment in this fight that, that really pushed it over the goal line, no? This, that day. John Stewart's powerful words, Lou Alvarez's words, and the way he looked, he really encapsulated what so many people are going through, this shrunken body, powerful words, not a strong voice, but just the power. And he gave his heart. One of the other things he said was, you know, I shouldn't have to come down here, but you made me do it. What happened in Congress then? So the fund, the bill was passed. Republicans came on board. The president signed it. And now, basically in perpetuity, those who become ill are eligible for compensation. You were there every step of the way. Uh, You were at the White House when it was signed. You just recently were at the Beacon Theater here in Manhattan when the responders who were responsible for helping get it passed were honored by the mayor. You know, you and I have talked about this a lot. This is the story of our lifetime. These are, these are our people. This is our city. These are the people we see fighting fires, responding to crimes, neighbors of ours. This is, this is important to us. And witnessing this up close was humbling. To see so many sick I mean, I could tell you 10 stories, 20 stories of guys who are sick, guys who have died, guys who lobbied, people who didn't. A high school senior, she was honored this past week at the Beacon Theater for her efforts. People having to fight for something they shouldn't have to fight for. When we asked our reporters to talk to us about the big stories they covered this year, our Steve Burns didn't hesitate with his thought. He says, we're reaching crisis state in the case of our city streets getting more dangerous for both pedestrians and especially cyclists. Here's our conversation with Steve. The city focuses a lot on numbers, and one of the numbers that is not particularly good this year is cycling deaths. Steve Burns has been covering this story very closely. Steve, what are the numbers we're seeing, and why are these numbers going up? So I think the headline on these numbers is, in 2018, 
10 cyclists died on city streets. We met that number this year by mid-May, and in total, as of this recording, 28 cyclists have died in 2019. It's, uh, by any measure, a tragedy, and advocates are saying things need to change as a result of this. One of the things that you've focused on, it's really become a big battle, is who controls who should be entitled to city streets. You've got uh, drivers, you've got pedestrians, you've got cyclists, you've got an expanding network of bike lanes. How is that playing out? Yeah, it's played out in a bunch of different ways. The city started up Vision Zero a number of years ago, and I think the advocates would say those efforts have basically plateaued uh, in terms of putting in the bike lanes, putting in uh, the bus lanes, making things safer for pedestrians, expanding sidewalks, all of those kinds of things. There's a finite amount of space in New York City, and the goal is to use that space as efficiently as possible. What the city has found out is that cars and, and single-occupant cars are not all that efficient, so we need to give that space over to more efficient modes, and that's pedestrians, bicyclists, buses. But that's always a battle when you have to take space away from some people and give it to other people. It's never easy. And I think the advocates here would tell you that uh, when you put in bike lanes, uh, it's always uh, kind of an uphill battle. And uh, the city may have grown stagnant in its efforts here with more people getting on bikes. There needs to be more infrastructure to meet those needs. And and the argument here is that uh, things have plateaued. I suspect the flip side is people are not biking, uh, cycling 12 months a year in New York City. So you might have from November to March where traffic is gridlocked and not that many people are using those lanes. City bike stats have actually showed that uh, ridership does drop somewhat in the winter months, but there's still thousands of people that do bike. And uh, we've seen the cyclist deaths uh, happening all across the the months of the year. The first one actually happened at 6 a.m. on January 1st, and uh, it only grew from there. The, The big question is, you know, what can we blame? Is there a common thread in these deaths? And it's kind of confounding because there really isn't. I mean, uh, 11 happened after dark, 7 were during rush hour, 9 during the middle of the day. Uh, two cyclists were doored. That's when someone opens the car door and the, the bicyclist uh, slams into it. Uh, two were struck by hit-and-run drivers. 10 were hit by trucks. One killed by a drunk driver. Uh, the age range, uh, youngest was 10 years old. Oldest was 87 years old. There's really no common thread here, and that's, of course, frustrating when you're trying to find a solution. And the tragedy here is not in the numbers, but in the individuals, as you say, from 10 to 87 people who seemingly for no reason were killed. Right. And this is uh, something you hear uh, at these memorials, at these protests. Every every cyclist that shows up says, it very easily could have been me. Uh, and we went to a, a memorial for the 19th cyclist who died. His name was Jose Alzariz. He was killed in mid-August. Uh, a driver speeding down Coney Island Avenue was running red lights. Uh, Alzariz was stopped at the red light uh, on the shoulder when uh, that driver hit a car, which then slammed into him. Uh, really struck a nerve, especially because there was dash cam footage of it, and it just showed how hopeless uh, it looked. He, he really had no chance to react or even move. Uh, so we went to uh, the memorial ride for Jose Alzariz uh, a couple weeks later. His good friend Jonathan Blyer was there and spoke to, to kind of the, the effort that needs to take place as a result of this. It's not just grief, but things need to change as a result. Jose's death was not an accident. Jose's death was a crash. Jose's death and many other deaths by automobile are entirely preventable. Our city is in crisis, and yet the Department of Transportation 
has proven to be reluctant to roll out changes fast enough or aggressive enough for New York City to lead on this issue. Just a few days ago, likely in response to Jose's death and this community's outrage, the DOT announced plans to paint bike lanes, non-protected bike lanes along Coney Island Avenue. We all know what non-protected bike lanes are. They're great places for cars to double park. They're great express lanes for cars looking to bypass traffic and they are terrible places to ride a bike. To the DOT, we say that non-protected bike lanes are not good enough. A protected bike lane Thank you. A protected bike lane likely would have saved Jose's life. One more thing before we go. Mayor de Blasio is committed to this. What happens if the next mayor is not quite as committed? Do we break up bike lanes? Do we stop building bike lanes? Or is this big thing now in the city? It sounds like things are, are moving in the direction of, of there's no turning back in terms of bike lanes. Uh, the mayor uh, has put in the, the green wave plan when it became clear that things uh, were not looking good for bicyclists this year. He's committed to building 30 miles of protected bike lanes a year. Uh, Corey Johnson, the city council speaker, uh, kind of headlined the street's master plan, which starts up in 2021, where we're going to be building 50 miles of protected bike lanes every year. So it does seem to be, uh, at least in, in terms of law, set in stone that we will be getting more bike lanes in the city. The advocates just want to see them faster, and they want to see them be protected, not just on the street, inches away from cars, but have some protection for those bicyclists. Steve, thanks for your expertise. My pleasure. We spent a good deal of time this year talking about New York mayors, present and past, running for president. And no one better to chat about it than our veteran City Hall reporter, Rich Lamb. Mike Bloomberg, who was mayor for how many years in New York? It's three terms, right? That's right. Uh, don't forget the third term. He basically uh, had term limits eliminated by, by uh, <laughs> telling the city council, I'm going to run again. <laughs> and uh, his argument was he ran the city very well and they needed him post 9-11, right? That was his argument? Yeah, that was his argument. And uh, also, I think that uh, he was interested in continuing to try to run out the programs that he had started, you know? And now he wants to run the country. And he wants to run on this idea that he ran the biggest city in America. Uh, he's obviously got his own policy issues. But he only joined the race a couple of weeks ago. And already, Rich, he has spent more money than any of the Democrats have in the race already. And, you know, one of the polls has him at 7%. That's utterly remarkable. I mean, when you think about the amount of money he's spending, what he's trying to do is position himself as a successful businessman, a successful political leader, uh, a guy you can trust. And uh, he says, you know, that he was building things, creating jobs while that other guy was tweeting. So he's actually going directly after the president. His opponents, his Democratic opponents, uh, are highly critical of him saying he's trying to buy the election. And they're, they're, you know, they've all been put off by it. Well, his money is an advantage and a disadvantage at the same time. So uh, here he is. He can buy all the television time and all the ads he wants to, um, to his heart's content, really, across the country. And all of the battleground states, he can put up the advertising and he can hope to build a momentum. He's hoping for an avalanche, obviously, uh, of... Of uh, goodwill, if you will. Uh, and he's creating his own image 
But again, uh, you know, Elizabeth Warren said he's trying to buy the election. Uh, and that's that's a critical thing because a lot of younger Democratic voters don't like that. Uh, and they don't like the billionaire uh, who's in the White House now. And uh, they're not so sure about the billionaire who wants to move him out. He tried this before, Rich, um, 2016, right? He, he entertained this idea and then backed off when he found that there was a stronger candidate in his mind. You know, in 2008, there were rumors that uh, I actually played him in the inner circle. And, uh, <laughs> and, and the song we sang was, Should I Stay or Should I Go? Uh, by the clash, you know, and uh, and it, and really, uh, Bloomberg's table—they were rocking, they were up cheering, they were they were just going crazy uh, at that point. And 2012 again, in 2016, he he really, you know, he was he was thinking about it, and then he saw that Hillary Clinton was going to be the nominee. He eventually endorsed her. Do you get a sense, Rich, that if he doesn't? get much past 7%, and all of a sudden when the votes are, uh, start, are started to be cast in just a, a few short weeks, I mean, the first voting is in February, and he's not on the ballot in either Iowa on the 3rd and two weeks later in New Hampshire, uh, the first votes that could be cast for Mike Bloomberg will be a couple of weeks after New Hampshire on that first Super Tuesday. Uh, do you get a sense that if he doesn't resonate within those weeks of March, uh, that he might consider pulling out and pushing his influence both in money and politics, uh, the issues that he is fighting for, uh, to another candidate? Well, you know, there's a fascinating part of the Bloomberg campaign. His organization has promised a number of possible campaign staffers uh, in the battleground states that they will be employed by the campaign whether or not he makes the general election ballot. What does that tell you? Uh, as, as uh, some have said, it's personal. He, he really wants to go after Trump. And uh, we had heard some reporting this week that when he opened up the first official campaign office, and I think Charlotte in North Carolina, when he wants to go head-to-head in that state with the top Democrats, he has committed as well to having that office open through the election in 2020 in November uh, to, to, in his words to make sure that Donald Trump is defeated in November 2020. Well, you know, there are amazing numbers here, and he's committed uh, $100 million to anti-Trump campaign ads uh, beyond his own campaign. Uh, and he's uh, also committed further millions on voter registration campaigns in battleground states. So there's a lot of money involved here, and there is uh, uh, the will of a man who is is very tough to beat. Uh, one thing you keep hearing from the Republicans and the president uh, in particular is he'd love to get up on the debate stage with Mike Bloomberg. What, what, what do you think that might look like if it ever would get to that? <laughs> that would be very interesting. You know, I can imagine a few lines uh, that Bloomberg might use uh, that I've heard him use before. You're entitled uh, to your own opinion, but not to your own facts. Uh, he he uh, is very much data driven. Uh, he will have a command of the of the numbers of the budget. Uh, he will have a command of what's happened in in foreign affairs to our allies. You know, Bloomberg studies hard. He works hard. Uh, he he's in early in the morning and stays up late at night. Uh, and he he is a guy who. Uh, I don't know. You can you can throw a lot of words around in a debate that may or may not be fact based. But I think he pointed out whether now can he stand up against a guy like Trump? Trump is a difficult. I mean, think of all of the people that Trump has had beaten, mm-hmm. who are amazing public speakers. Uh, does Mike Bloomberg fall into the category of an amazing public speaker? 
I'm not so sure that Mike Bloomberg would say that of himself. Uh, 2019 uh, was also a, a significant year in the presidential race for uh, another uh, New York City mayor. Didn't go so well. <laughs> no, it didn't go so well at all. Uh, you know, uh, Mayor de Blasio got in late. Uh, he got in. You know, uh, there is a, a saying in business that most businesses go under because they're undercapitalized. They don't have the money. Well, he didn't have the money lined up. He didn't have the support lined up. Uh, but he, he really thought that he had a base in some states uh, because of his record as a mayor in New York, especially when it comes to stop, question, and frisk, which is something he talks about all the time, uh, that they've cut the number of arrests and the minority community has benefited from that. And you, you saw him go to South Carolina a lot uh, in the hopes of being able to build something from there. Well, it didn't work out. He ran out of money, ran out of gas. It lasted for Four months, uh, and now he's back to being mayor. But for one third of the year, he wasn't here essentially. Now he's back, and I heard us do a story a, a couple of days ago that uh, he and the council speaker Corey Johnson haven't even spoken in in a period of time, weeks. Right? Did I hear that correctly? That's right. Uh, there was a story that they hadn't spoken in a month, uh, but uh, he was asked about that at a news conference, and he said. Oh, I talked to him two hours ago. So he kind of knocked that story down. Uh, It was, uh, uh, and then he went on to say, here are the things that I have accomplished uh, with Corey Johnson over a two-year period. So uh, he he tried to demonstrate that they have a wonderful relationship, that they've done a lot of great stuff together, and that uh, the story was uh, baloney, if you will. Um, Here's a curveball for you to end this conversation. What do you think 2020 is going to be in terms of de Blasio and what he needs to to get done? I know the subways, the MTA, uh, congestion uh, pricing is going to be a big, big story during the course of the year. Do you think it's infrastructure, transportation, improving that in the city? Well, it's also uh, the homeless crisis. You know, uh, the mayor is really focused on that. Uh, he has, uh, they're ramping up the efforts on that, spending a lot more money, uh, adding to the outreach staff. They're adding uh, medical uh, personnel and uh, mental health personnel. They want to get uh, a handle on, on, the, on the homelessness because they're, they're being killed by stories all the time on the television about uh, people in the subways and people on the streets. They want to get the hardcore homeless off the street and de Blasio said the plan they have will do that. He promises that it will end the uh, long-term homelessness in New York City, and it's a five-year plan, and he's hoping that will be one of his legacies. Obviously, there are other legacies as well, uh, pre-K, 3K. These are long-term looks at education that uh, they hope within 10 years will completely change the face of New York City. Rich Lamb, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. I mean, 2020, it just doesn't Mm. seem possible. It sounds like, uh, you know, we used to describe vision as 2020. Well, we'll see what the vision is for this 2020. 2020 is going to turn out to be some year. It's going to be a raucous election year, and it'll be very interesting for the news business, I think. Rest up. (laughs) Thank you. Rich is someone you've been listening to on the radio for more than 40 years. He is a constant presence. Another constant presence is behind the scenes. Marta Zelenska is her managing editor for the website, and she digs in deep on so many things. We are a radio station, but if you're listening to this, you also know that we have a website, and that website is run by Marta, who has been very, very busy this year. Marta, give us an idea. What were some of the top things people were clicking on this year? 
Um, okay. So our f- most read article was surprisingly not like a heavy breaking news story or anything like that. It was actually about bumper cars on ice coming to Brooklyn. And the story was uh, cross-posted to us from our country station. And the reason why it did so well was because it went viral on Facebook. So tens of thousands of people were just sharing it across Facebook. It's kind of depressing, frankly, as a reporter here, that the top story was bumper cars on ice. Well, you know, it was seasonal. It suddenly starts getting colder, and people are looking for things to do, and they have families. So... You know, it's it. I it's get much it. easier to I share bumper cars on ice than you know, murder and Death mayhem and, destruction. and yes, all that stuff. Indeed. What else did we have? Um, so the second uh, most popular story was actually uh, the John Stewart receiving Ray Pfeiffer's turnout coat, and that happened just moments before his uh, powerful testimony before Congress when he was fighting for the Victims Compensation Fund. And Peter, you were actually the one who captured that moment. I did. So that video, uh, the article did really well. The video was just really touching. You know, like we were all kind of in tears along with it. Very passionate. Yes. And I I remember during your reporting, you said that when he received that that coat, um, like that pretty much was what like fired him up. And I mean, you could hear it in his voice and you could see it when he testified before Congress, just uh, how passionate he is about yes. this particular thing. Um, and his testimony was actually the most listened to audio that we had the entire year. That is interesting. So this is something, it's a national story mm-hmm. with a clearly local connection, but people want to hear this. Oh, Yeah. So I'm curious, you've got the bumper cars and you've got 9-11 kind of juxtaposed. Right. Do people use the website more for the hard news or kind of the featurey stuff? I would say both. You know, I think we offer them the blend of the hard news, breaking news. Obviously, we're on top of everything that's happening locally. Um, But at the same time, if anybody's looking for a respite from the heavy stuff, we give them you know, some heartwarming stories, more featurey type stuff. So we offer this nice blend of if you're looking for the day's news, we have it. But if you need something a little bit lighter, we're there for you too. So what is the magic that's involved in what you do and trying to, I don't know if curate is the right word, it's kind of a fancy word, but what is the magic in trying to determine what what you're placing and how you're placing it on the website? I think, you know, we prioritize news. So whatever our reporters are on for the day, like that's what we're definitely prioritizing and putting the most focus on uh, because in the end, you know, we are a hard news station and that's what we want to focus on. But after that is when we start to maybe stretch out a little bit and see what else is out there. Um, You know, some of our reporters, we have great features like the sweet spot and stories from Main Street, which also give us an opportunity to just go beyond the news articles that we're doing. So, um, you know, one of the most popular stories that we had this year was when Mike Sugarman traveled to Old Forge, Pennsylvania, I think it was, for his Sweet Spot feature, and it turned out that they claimed to be the pizza capital of the world. Yeah. 
So I think Tell New Yorkers, New Yorker, right, yeah, exactly. New Yorkers have a lot to say about that. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. The pizza looked all right. <laughs> but it wasn't New York pizza. It wasn't New York uh, pizza. Forget about it, as they say. Yeah. <laughs> is, is there anything else that was big this year that, that you just think was really important or significant or interesting? Um, I th- One thing that I definitely enjoyed was having the Mets on with us this season. This was like the first year that we had them. And there was a lot of excitement about that, not only for us at the station, but with all the fans, too. And the story about their season opener, where they won, did really well. Their home opener, eh, they didn't win. But that's okay. It was still very exciting. I was at that season opener in Washington. Oh, yeah. I was. It was fun. It must have been exciting. Too bad they couldn't win at home. Do do we have nothing to say about that? No. Well... You win some, you lose, you lose some. some. That's, that's yeah. just the way it goes. Marta, thank you. Thank you. Peter, we love Marta on WCBS. Nobody gets to see her out, but we deal with her every day, and she's she's a terrific presence. And would you agree we need to get her out more? She does need to see the light of day. <laughs> she is fun, and she is smart. She makes things happen. Okay, we're going to make that our New Year's resolution to get Marta on the air Uh, on In-Depth more this year. We've got a whole nother In-Depth show to do for next week. Stories that you probably remember. Some stories maybe you don't remember, but you want to remember. So, so much went on this year that we needed to split it into two In-Depths. Two In-Depths, and, you know, they're similar, but they are different because the, the content is different and the types of stories are different. So shout out to Bill Tynan, who handles our production and has to sit and listen to our in-depth preludes to the in-depth conversation. So thank you, Bill, and Happy New Year to you. Uh, And whatever your holiday that you subscribe to, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, uh, all of the rest. It's a terrific season for us, and we're reflective of what went on in the year past and also looking forward to a, to a very interesting uh, 2020. So this reminder, 880 In-Depth is uh, going to be in your inbox if you subscribe every Tuesday afternoon for your ride home on Tuesday, or you can listen to it uh, you know, whenever you want at your convenience. But you must subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply.